I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Sick Boy, a podcast where we talk about what it's like to be sick. This week's guest is April. She had breast cancer. Let's talk about it. Here we go. Uh, we are sitting here with our new friend, April Stearns. Did I pronounce the last name right? Stearns? Yes, you did. Amazing. Uh, what was the other way that you thought it might be? It might be. It could have uh, been, been Stearns. Um, but, you know, right. who knows? That makes sense. Stearns. Stearns. <laughs> um, I'm glad you got it right. Uh, April, we are here to talk to you today about uh, a couple of things. One being the fact that you are the founder and editor-in-chief of Wildfire magazine. Um, uh, but before we get into uh, Wildfire and all the good work that's happening over there, um, let's talk about breast cancer and, uh, in particular, your experience with breast cancer. <clears throat> Sure thing. Yeah, I was diagnosed at 35 with stage three breast cancer. That for me was nine years ago now. And fortunately, I've been living with no evidence of disease for those nine years. Um, But at that time, when it came crashing into my life, I was um, on the newer side of being married. I had a little one. I, in fact, actually, I thought... um, I was just kind of cruising. I was like in cruise control with my life. Like, even though I had a little one, she was just out of babyhood. I felt like we were, we had survived something and now we were just going to be like, you know, smooth sailing from here Mm -hmm. on out. And then this massive uh, life-changing diagnosis came along. Mm -hmm. How did that, um, how, how did you first discover that you had breast cancer? I mean, we've spoken to a number of people who have had breast cancer on the show and it usually starts with like detecting a lump or mass in, in their breasts. Was that the case for you? It was. I was one of the, um, I've now met several women that this has been the case for. So I was one of those who actually found my lump while breastfeeding. For me, it was literally um, one night while breastfeeding my um, daughter to sleep. And I remember sitting on the couch and she was falling asleep and I felt this thing and I was like, what, what could that be? You know, maybe it was a milk related, uh, like a cyst or an Mm. infection or something, but it just felt really foreign to me. And, um, so I remember putting my daughter down, um, and going into the bedroom where my husband was and just being like, could you, can you feel this? What is this? And I will never forget just the look on his face. Like just like all the blood just drained out of his face. And he Mm. was like, I've, that's not been there before. What is that? So Mm-hmm. Yeah, found it myself and then was really fortunate that my um my general doctor she said to me it's probably a milk related thing you are breastfeeding but let's go ahead and get this checked out right away and she really started me down that path toward diagnosis. Mm-hmm. It, I mean this might be getting a little bit of ahead of ourselves but is there 
Um, I think this is the first time I've heard, uh, at least on the show, uh, from someone who's found out that they had a, a mass in their breast through the act of breastfeeding. Yeah. Is there, is there, um, this might be a really dumb question, but like, is there, is there risk of like the baby, um, it, like receiving some bad juju from the breast milk? Like if there's a, if there's a tumor in the breast, was, was there any conversation surrounding that? That is an awesome question. I don't remember us ever having any discussion about that. So I don't think that 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 was a risk. I think more what was the problem was that the first step of my, you know, after the mammogram and the biopsy, the first thing I had was a MRI with contrast. And so that would have been a problem for her. So I had to wean her pretty quickly. Um, And granted, I was in chemo two weeks after that anyway, but that the shock that I was going to have to wean her for, for this, you know, medicine and this diagnosis and all that, that was like really heartbreaking. Yeah. no doubt, Especially that quick, you know, like that's mm -hmm. such a drastic shift. I imagine too, in terms of like, like being able to give like the baby bad milk through breastfeeding, that would kind of be the same idea as like being able to pass cancer to somebody through like making out with them. Right. Like Mm -hmm. that's not really how it works. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess I guess you're right. Like that's why I was that that's why now I look at it and I go, that was kind of a dumb dumb yeah. question. But it, it makes sense. It, it I mean it to- wasn't a dumb question. No, you had to ask it, but it totally makes more sense that when the chemo starts, that's when you don't right. want to be uh breastfeeding. That yeah. that makes a lot more sense to me. Yeah. Um uh I I mean so one of the things that um that I can't help but think about is like I've done a lot. I used to do a lot of work for an organization called Athletes for Cancer, and and the work that they would do specifically is for like young adults, uh, young adult cancer survivors. So like people between the ages of eighteen, and I think the cutoff is like forty five or something. And um, one of the things that I would always notice in in attending these camps and hearing the conversations between these people who've all gone through a very wide variety, like every every manner of cancer on the spectrum, um, are attending these, these camps. And, uh, we would have these like discussions at night, um, kind of like campfire, uh, campfire discussions, you know, sitting around in a circle and just sharing. And the, the like through line, every single camp that every single camper kind of felt similarly to was this notion that like when you are a young adult, you know, if you're in your thirties and you get cancer, there is something so immensely isolating about that experience because it, for a lot of people, it feels like, oh, I'm the only person here who's a young adult living with cancer. Like I look to my right and there's, you know, a 75 year old who's also receiving chemo or, you know, if I look to my left, it's like, it's maybe it's a, a child that's, that's going through it. But like, where's all my, where's all my peers? Where are all of my homies like getting cancer with me? It's not, it just seems like it's not happening, which we all know that that is not the case. It, you know, you can get cancer at any fucking age, but did you experience that? Did you have like a, a, that sort of isolation in your, in your journey with cancer as a 35 year old, especially in, in the realm of, of breast cancer and the type of cancer that you had? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, everything you just described was so, um, so much my experience, especially being there in the chemo lounge, you know, everyone around me was so much older and, um, 
literally no one in my friend group, no one in my colleague group, no one in my family could relate to what I was going through. I had some family who had had breast cancer way before. Like I had a grandmother who passed from metastatic breast cancer, but it was until it happened to me, it was really not on the radar. I would say of any of us that it could happen so young. Um, and yeah, I felt really, really isolated for, for several years. This was 2012. So I wasn't like hooked into any kind of social media really around cancer or anything at that point. Um, and yeah, I do remember when I met my first, my first like local friend who also had breast cancer, we kind of spotted each other across a writing workshop and they had kind of said in the writing workshop, like, don't assume that because you're telling stories, you know, that you're going to be best friends. But we, we totally like hijacked each other in the parking lot. Like, I think I need to be your friend. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right, right. It was really, yeah, really important to attach to someone else who could get it. Yeah. Was it your... um this is the preface to this, I guess. Was it your first, uh, I'm sorry if you said this, was it your first child that you had had at the time? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, like I know that that is a, I mean your first child, like I can, I can only imagine that that is like a crazy time where the kind of idea of your life is, is changing or has like just drastically changed from, you know, like, this is me and my partner and now we have this child and now my priorities have like drastically changed to take care of this infant that is now the the like the thing that everything revolves around and then all of a sudden you've got this thing mm. that you know demands so much attention this evil and child coming out of like, your breast <laughs> <laughs> like what is how are you what are your thoughts and feelings where where you find yourself in this in this in this new experience of of wanting to and 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 really needing to take care of a child and then all of a sudden being diverted back to like holy shit i have i have something that needs all my attention mm. which is this this cancer diagnosis oh that is such a great question i think you just like nailed for me the huge juxtaposition between being a mom and being you know the one in the family that needed care Mostly my feeling at that point was guilt. I just felt so Mm. bad that I was responsible for kind of blowing up our family in that way. I was also really scared for my own mortality and not sure, you know, what that would mean for her. I felt really guilty for having brought her here and then being like possibly going to have to leave her here. Um, And it was really hard to have to leave her for really long days of chemo too. Like at that point we were spending 24 seven together and like overnight, you know, I had that, that MRI, that crazy MRI where she had to wean. And then suddenly I was just gone, you know, for eight hours at a stretch. And it was so, um, it was so unheard of for both of us. And really hard for me for a long time to shift my focus to myself and trying to care for Mm -hmm. myself. Mm -hmm. She had a really hard time um, seeing me like napping during the day, things like that. Like it just was, it was startling in every single aspect to our family dynamic, I would say. Yeah, I was going to say, I I imagine that it wasn't just going for eight hours. It was coming home and being totally depleted too. And then trying to like, you know, show your your kid that 
you're there for them and that you love them and that it's, you know, this thing that's taking you away from being there. But at the same time, like when you leave the hospital, your quote unquote battle with this disease doesn't end there. It's like the rest and recovery at home and it's the laying around feeling totally drained and like you can't do anything. And, but also my mom had a bladder cancer and I know that her like biggest focus was like trying to make sure that like me and my brother were okay with her diagnosis. Mm. And so like she would do a lot of things like, and I was, you know, 27 years old (laughs) at the time and like, and hosted a podcast where we talk about what it's like to be sick. And she didn't want to talk to me about it because she was worried that I couldn't emotionally handle it. And I, and I couldn't imagine what it would be like to have a young child at the same time, Mm. trying to make sure that they're okay when you're also prioritizing your, when you have to prioritize your own health through the treatment. Mm. Absolutely. Well, and I, I also will add that, for me, it was really hard to comfort her without using my body to do that. Like that relationship Mm. at that stage is so physical. And, um, you know, first of all, I think that she felt that my breasts were hers, you know? And so I had taken this thing away from her that was so foundational for her. But then, you know, when you go through surgery, i had a mastectomy, things like that. You can't even literally hold someone, um, or sleep next to them at that stage, you know, someone like that age, because they might kick you or whatever. It's so hard to communicate that love and affection in a new way, like trying Mm. to learn this new, this new script. It's, it's Mm. really hard. What was the, so you just said that you had a mastectomy. Um, what was the, like, what was, what, what did treatment look like for you from, from basically like step one to, to finally being in, in, do they say remission still? Is that, is that even like the word that's used or it's like in the clear? We usually just say Ned, you know, the no evidence of disease, um, instead of remission. So yeah. Ned Ned sounds like a friendly neighbor that I would (laughs) like. Yeah. Yeah. I'm all about Ned. He's, he sounds cool. Yeah. (laughs) Hanging with with Ned. Are you tight with Ned right now? Yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah. Cher was a Simpsons Simpsons So I had, um, uh, so my centimeter or my, I'm sorry, my tumor was seven centimeters. It was really large when it was um, diagnosed and it was diagnosed as a HER2 positive um, breast cancer, which meant it was really fast growing and um, already in my lymph nodes. And so my, um, my oncology team decided to attack it with chemo first and just mm. try to halt it there and possibly shrink it before surgery. So I went through um, about five to six months of, um, of initial chemo. And then I had a radical modified mastectomy, meaning that I chose to have just the affected breast removed and keep the, so I had my left breast removed, I kept my right breast, and I decided to have an aesthetic flat closure, which meant that I didn't have any reconstruction um, of that, like a breast bound reconstruction. I just had a flat flat closure. And then I went... um, during all of that, I continued with, um, there's a treatment for her two positive breast cancer at that time was just her septin. So I continued with her septin for a full 13 months, but after the mastectomy, I had 35 rounds of radiation. Mm, okay. Uh, what, what is the, what is the discussion with like, with your healthcare providers, with your, with your, your partner, with yourself, when it comes to discussing 
<clears throat> that part of the treatment, which is like the mastectomy. Like, like what is, because, so I, we're going to talk about the, about wildfire a little bit later, but one of the things that, that kind of, um, stuck out to me when I, when I picked it up and first started reading it, and I was actually just going through the, the, uh, the editor's note in your, your issue for June, July, where you're, you're talking about <clears throat> your fears of putting, your initial fears of putting this like very, um, <clears throat> very revealing photo on the cover of the magazine, which is a, a woman with her, both of her breasts exposed and there's cancer scars. And it's obvious that this person has had, um, <clears throat> reconstructive surgery due to cancer. And in that, <clears throat> in that editor's note, <clears throat> excuse me, in that editor's note, there was a, the first thing I read was DIEP flap breast mound reconstructive surgery. And I was like, what the fuck is that? I've never <laughs> heard of that before. And then, and then the next thing I read was what you, what you just said, which was a unilateral mastectomy with an aesthetic flat closure. And I was like, whoa, what is that? Like, holy smokes, there's, how many different options are out there and, and what are, what are those options? And what we've does that never mean? talked about that. And we've never talked yeah. about that. Yeah. So I guess like bef- before we get into what are the different options that exist for folks that, that experience breast cancer and, and need to make those decisions. I'm really curious about what that conversation is like again with yourself, with your loved ones, with your healthcare providers and how tough is it to like, is it, uh, is it a, is it often a scenario where you get to make a choice based off a list and you kind of pick one or is it really dependent on the type of cancer you have and, and the circumstances around that? Yeah, those are great questions. Um, because I think that a lot of people going into breast cancer don't know, first of all, that there are so many different types of breast cancer. You know, you just think of it as, as one thing. Um, but then, yeah, that there are so many different surgery options. And of course, I'm speaking to you from the U.S. And so some of our choices may be a little bit different when it comes to um, those surgery options. But for me personally, some of the questions um, or most of the decisions, rather, that went into my decision all still hinged around the fact that I had this you know, child at home that I was desperate to get back to mothering. Mm -hmm. And so I was eager to choose an option that would not require me to have a lot of extra surgeries. I was starting to become aware of people having complications with implants, needing to have revisions, you know, to make things look a little better, getting maybe a little ill from different implants or things like implants flipping, you know, it just started to sound like maybe you start down a path of a lot of surgeries. And so I chose the option that I hoped would just be kind of one and done. And um, Mm. luckily I had a surgical team that didn't ask me, you know, if I was sure now I hear of women who want to go flat and they get pushback from, um, you know, from plastic surgeons saying, are you sure? Like you might change your mind. You're young. Surely you want, you know, to have breasts like let maybe we should leave a whole lot of extra skin in case you want to stick an implant in there. Mm -hmm. Um, I was really lucky that my surgeon was like, sure, you want to go flat? We'll do that. And he made me super flat and I only had to have that one surgery. Mm. Um, but yeah, my whole thing, both with the unilateral and with the flat was all about getting home, getting back to my child. And at that point, I really had hoped to have another child that didn't pan out for me in terms of fertility. But 
I really had hoped to have the experience of breastfeeding another child again. And so that's why I opted to preserve a breast, but some women do, you know, choose to have both breasts removed and, and here for the most part, I think you are able to, to just choose whether you want to have one or both. Um, Mm-hmm. And that's, out of, and that's that, like a preemptive that, sort of, right. uh, just to mm-hmm. make sure, okay, we're going to just yeah. um, remove both sides just so that in case there ever is the risk of, of the one side that wasn't affected this time becoming affected down the road. Exactly. Right. Right. And, and they'll do it all, you know, at one time, some women do go back in and decide to have the other removed later. Mm. Some women have, um, a reduction on their natural breast side. Like there's, there are actually a lot of different options you can do. Right. Mm-hmm. If, if you choose to go, um, like you said, totally flat, is there an option to, um, get implants down the road or, or like if they don't leave enough skin, then that's totally off the table too. Yeah. So it's interesting. I've never had that conversation with my surgeon myself, but in the community, I have seen women who were extremely flat have had success with having implants down the road. There does have to be enough skin to expand. Um, but I think if they take it slow, I mean, skin's amazing and yeah. really mm. able to expand. So, right. It's kind of yeah. like you're those ear gauges. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Give it enough time. Right. Yeah. What, so yeah. what is, There's what a, is a DEP flap flap? D-ep, yeah. I, I'm probably fucking butchering that. D-I-E-P. D-E-P. Right. So I, flap um, I don't. Round? Right. So I'm not going to try to like say what it actually stands for, but we usually call it a deep flap. Um, and so there's a different type, there's different types of flap surgeries and that involves using your natural fat in your body to build breast mounds. So in this particular case, you can see from the scars that this woman had fat taken from her belly to Mm. create her, her breasts. And so there's also tram flat where you would take from the thigh. There's another version where you would take from the back. Um, and so it's just another option. Instead of using an artificial implant, you would use fat from, from the woman's body and to rebuild those breast mounds. Right. Mm, wow. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking at the cover of the magazine now. And <clears throat> now, now that makes a lot more sense. Wow. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Um, April, April, when you, when this is like, this is a little bit of, uh, this is like a, maybe an adjacent conversation to this, but something that I'm curious about because you, you mentioned it um, there when you were when you talked about considering like all the options that you had um, or all the reasons why you kind of chose the option you did, um, and something that we haven't talked about on the podcast before, but like would be really a really interesting conversation um, is the 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 whole thing around implants and like the potential for um, I don't know if it's rejection or if it's um, if it's, a, I can't remember what the name of it is. It's some type of like, it's almost like people, people who have had implants can find a, can find like later down the road that they've had like these really complex health issues, almost like lupus or like Lyme disease sort of situation where there's all these kind of weird things happening. And then they find out that it's, that it's like implant related. What was your, like, what do you, do you know anything about that? Did anything come up in your research? Like, what did you find? Oh yeah, that is actually a really big topic in the community, um, in the cancer community, but as well, you know, in just women who are having implant surgery that, um, yeah, you're absolutely right that I think it's called just breast implant, um, illness and that it, it is like this systemic thing that can cause all kinds of, 
you know, fatigue or general illness that is hard to pinpoint. And some women just develop a suspicion, I guess, or, or just a feeling that it might be related to their implants and report that when they have them removed, they just feel so much better. Some people have their implants removed because they just never really felt like themselves, you know, having them. Mm. And it isn't related necessarily to illness. They just there was something like a psycho, psychological, exactly like, mm. how you adapt to it. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, but some women definitely get very ill from their implants. Um, and recently there were some recalls with implants and people also have to sometimes change them out after a certain number of years. Oh, um, wow. there's, there's kind of a, a lot around implants. Yeah. Oh, wow. It's a fascinating, uh, it, it really caught, it caught my attention because a couple of people like a couple of people that I, that I knew growing up with had, had, had that experience and, and someone really close to me not that long ago had implants removed. And she was like, you know, obviously this is anecdotal and it's not for, it's not, does this doesn't happen to everybody, but, um, um, yeah. And she was basically said, you know, life changing, like, you know, years of years of question marks over her health were, Wild. you know, were completely answered when she got her implants removed and was yeah, it's totally life changing. So um, yeah, I was just curious about your, about, you know, what, what you found in that, in that realm, because it's, it's something that's kind of piqued my interest in the past. Um, <clears throat> something else that we haven't re- I don't think we've really talked about on the show, but I think this would probably be a good place to, to broach the subject is the, the, the taboos surrounding, um, surrounding sex and breast cancer, you know, like we're talking about breasts, the removal of breasts, um, uh, for a lot of for a lot of women, breasts are very like sexual part of their identity. Losing a breast, I can imagine for some, be like a really a really, um, I mean, potentially like big blow to their their self confidence and their their um, <clears throat> their own body image. Sort of like challenges there. Um, what was what was that experience like for you? Was there was there like did this affect your your the way that you saw yourself in the mirror as like a sexual being? <clears throat> um, yeah, yeah. I um, I'm really glad you asked that question because I feel personally that it's a discussion that needs to be happening more in the community. Um, because when we start talking about it, we find that everyone is grappling with this and it comes from a lot of different angles. For me, some of it was physical. Some of it, I mean, physical in the sense that I had a body part removed. Um, but some of it was also physical in the sense that the treatment put me into menopause, which of course really changed, Uh. um, you know, how things functioned and all of that and kind of questioning my, my femininity, I think um, that's kind of what's at, at the heart of it all is that breast cancer really seems to affect these pieces of us that make us feel essentially feminine. And so then when that happens, it's like, okay, who am I? And how am I allowed to take up space on this planet anymore? Like, what is my role here? Mm-hmm. And for me personally, when I was, um, even though I opted to have the flat closure, I decided to wear a prosthetic breast in my, um, in my bra, you know, so every day I was sticking this big silicone form into my bra and going out into the world and passing (laughs) as a normal two-breasted woman. 
And I found, I did that for five years. Um, and I found that it was really causing a disconnect for me in my sexual relationship with my husband, because then I would come home and take off this breast and, and then I would be asymmetrical, you know, there in, in my bedroom where a place where you're supposed to feel like, I think you're most whole, you know, you're most essentially, um, Whole. I can't think of a better word than whole, but I, that was where I started to feel really broken, um, both because of the menopause and because of not really um, coming to terms with this body. So um, a series of things happened. I My breast form uh, thing actually ended up exploding one day and uh, I tried to like duct tape it back together <laughs> and oh, no. keep wearing it and it just really wasn't working. Oh, um, no. And you have to, you have to get like a, an actual prescription for it. And so I didn't really get around to getting that prescription for a while and started just out of necessity having to go asymmetrically into the world. And it was at that point, I actually found myself finally feeling sexy again and actually huh. feeling sexier as an asymmetrical woman than I had ever felt too breasted. It was such an interesting transformation. And I, I don't totally know what happened, except that when I walked out my front door, the whole world didn't stop and be like, what's wrong with her? You know, I almost right. like no one really noticed. I was the one, yeah. you know, with all of that. Um, and so to be able to be the same person in the world as I was at home in my most comfortable place really kind of helped me to feel sexy again. Mm-hmm. And then also working through some of the stuff with the menopause parts. Um, I think that's where a lot of women face face the challenges. Yeah. Yeah. In, in terms of your relationship with your husband, I imagine that communication is really important in terms of like feeling whole, feeling sexy, being able to be intimate in the bedroom. What was, what was your conversation or communication like with your partner? Yeah, I'm, it was interesting because I think that from the get go, he was way more on board with the fact that things had changed. You Mm -hmm. know, I wasn't the same person I was the day I was diagnosed. I'd been through something massive Mm -hmm. and we probably were going to have to rebuild from scratch. I could not wrap my head around that for a long time. I was like, no, sex is this thing that we've always had. Like, it's one thing, you know, and it's always going to be that one thing. And when that wasn't working, I, I had such a hard time with that. And meanwhile, he was so supportive of just trying to make a new blueprint. I mean, he even made these, um, he made these like questionnaires. That sounds really like clinical, but it was basically like this questionnaire that we both sat down. I remember the day we were drinking like Manhattans and we were Mm -hmm. answering these questions of like, okay, so what are we into now? Like, and he just was like, just like, let's just pretend we're brand new, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and try to figure it out. And it was so nice for me. It was so freeing for me, but unfortunately it still took me many, many years to stop banging my head against that wall. And I really had to go through a lot of anger and grief over being a different person in, Mm. and mostly in that regard to then come to a place of acceptance and being like, okay, I do have a new body and I am a different person now. So that's the interesting thing about our experience with our own mental health and how we see ourselves, because you could have the most supportive person there telling you that everything's going to be okay, working with you to communicate all the different ways that you can work together to make this work. Mm. But it's hard for in those moments, especially when we're 
experiencing our own traumas, it's really hard to sometimes see that yourself. And it's amazing mm-hmm. that your your husband was so supportive. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think of the people who probably aren't in the healthiest of relationships trying to communicate yeah. about those things and how challenging that could be. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. You were saying that it took years of sort of like banging your head against a wall to find, and then, and then eventually finally getting over that hump. <clears throat> and I, I, totally, I totally understand, like, anybody who, is put, who, who is, is, ends up in the scenario that you were in, there's inevitably going to be this this period of grief, this period of transition that is going to be hard. Um, but w- do you, like, would you have any advice for someone, say there's somebody out there right now listening who, like, you know, within the last month just had a mastectomy and and is in that boat right now where they're thinking, you know, they're struggling with their own self-identity and their own femininity and their their own, like, you know, sexual identity. <clears throat> Aside from the, the inevitable process of grief that they're going to have to go through, like, do you have any, would you have any, in retrospect, some, like, like tips for that person so that it doesn't have to be, like, a five, six, seven-year process before they kind of find themselves back into a body where they love themselves again? Yeah, I do. So writing was such a core part of my healing. And specifically when I started writing letters directly to parts of my body that I felt disconnected from, writing letters to apologize, to ask questions, to try to introduce myself like, okay, who are you and what, what, how do we all come together to make this one body? Um, and then really listening and for a response, you know, back from, from that body part was so transformational for me. One, because it finally put me in touch with a lot of anger that I think, um, I don't know if this is universal as a cancer patient, but I know for women, it's really, you're not really encouraged to get mad. You know, you're, Mm. you're okay with being sad. Like we get that it's okay to like be kind of confused, but when, when you're like, just really kind of pissed that the whole thing happened or for me that I had breast cancer and somehow it affected like my whole sexual like function. Like that was really, I was pissed at that. Like, Hey, this is breast cancer. Like you don't have to get involved in this, like stay out of it. Um, so when I finally like let myself get really good and mad and, and acknowledge that I was really mad and, and writing really helped me do that. That's when I was able to move beyond that and kind of live in the body again and, and start to find that place to acceptance. Mm-hmm. In your writing, like uh, the writing to your body parts, um, 
you just talking about that reminded me of an exercise. I went to theater school for in, in university, and uh, one of our creative writing, our creative writing class was like, uh, we had this exercise where it was it, we were to write a journal based on it, like, but the journal was from like a character that you're currently working on, and so it's it's the character actually writing the journal, and uh, and I was writing this journal um, of a <clears throat> of a. A sixteen-year-old girl who worked in a, a funeral home that was run by her family, and she was like a, basically a mortician in training. <clears throat> and I remember writing that, going, "Whoa, this is so wild!" Like she, all of a sudden, she's taking on her own voice. She has her own thoughts, and like I'm not, I'm just, I'm, I'm not even a part of this. Like I'm just, I'm just a witness to it. Um, did you? In waiting for the response from your body parts, did you ever try responding for them? Like, were you writing the responses out and listening to what they were saying? Yes, exactly. And it was exactly the way that you just described it. It's it's almost like it's just passing through you mm. and coming onto the page. And I find the best way to do that is by, you know, setting a timer and and just this commitment to keep your pen moving, your fingers tapping, you know, until the time goes off because we're not used to doing stuff like that. So there's a lot of hesitancy or like you know, this is what I'm supposed to write or what I'm supposed to say. And so you really have to kind of sit in there with it for a few minutes to let that to start to channel through. But yeah, literally receiving letters back from, from my, um, my breasts, from my vagina, like, you know, was Mm. just like, whoa, I don't know where that came from, but it was really needed. Cool. Mm -hmm. Very cool. I I think it it reminds me of, um, sometimes when I sit and meditate, I feel like there's, I have two voices. I have my voice that I, I speak with and that's who I am in this world. But then I have this like internal narrator or a monologue. And when I'm and it's quiet, David Attenborough. Yeah, I wish it was David. It's actually it's Morgan Freeman. Oh, yeah, and okay, uh, yes, yeah. and uh, look at him. I, I love I love Crouching, sort of like sitting. sitting I feel like when you sit and listen to it, it does feel sort of out of body. Like maybe it's not even you. Yeah. But like what you're really gleaning is like is like what your subconscious thinks. It's like this voice of your subconscious, and it's so interesting to like. It's it's almost like a self. Um, facilitated therapy session yeah. in a way, yeah, which totally. is like a really beautiful thing. <clears throat> yeah. Mm. I, I, speaking of writing, um, I think this is a great transition to talk about wildfire, which, um, so I, I, I mean, just intro it, let, let our listeners know what, what wildfire is, how it all came to be, um, and, and what you guys are working on currently. Yeah, absolutely. So Wildfire is a magazine that's both print and digital that I started publishing four years after my diagnosis. So I went through a few years of just uh, trying, like I said, kind of banging my head against a wall of just trying to get back to the person that I was before. And um, really holding on to this idea at that point that cancer was just going to be a little detour. And then I would be right back to the person I was before. Hmm. Only I discovered that the person I was was totally different. The work that I was doing, I was an event planner at that point. It just didn't fill me up the same way anymore. And then my dad got diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. And he asked me to be his caregiver. 
that was almost exactly two years after my diagnosis. So I, um, I, I said, yes, obviously. And I, I took care of him and he lived for about six months after his diagnosis. And during that, I realized how good it felt to give back some of what I had learned through my own cancer experience, you know, breast cancer and pancreatic are very different stage three, stage four, are very different, but I knew about how to, um, wrangle with the insurance company. I knew how tired he would be after chemo. I knew, you know, that certain things were going to taste like cardboard. Like I, there were certain things I knew and it felt so good to be able to share those things with him. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, he was giving me all the stories that he had accumulated in his life. And he just started like sharing those stories and unloading those stories. And so I started to really gather the the appreciation that I now have for story as legacy and how much that, that was giving him how healing that was for him to be sharing those stories and just how eager my brothers and I were for those stories and that transfer there. And so after my dad died, I, um, I, I just went through this whole kind of soul searching period of what am I going to do now and realized I really did want to stay in cancer and stay in that story kind of vein. I have a journalism background and um, wanted to use the writing that I, I knew how to do, but not to be the expert. I just wanted to make a platform for other people to tell their breast cancer stories mm. so that we could find each other. You know, it goes back to something that you said at the beginning about that isolation and, and not knowing anyone else who was young. And I really wanted to help bridge that in a way that was different than what was starting to happen on social media with just um, these kind of in the moment shares of feelings. I wanted to get to a deeper place of uncovering that transformation, you know, Mm. so how are you living in this body again? How are you, you know, rebuilding your relationship with your partner, you know, sexually, like just, I wanted to get to the why, you know, and help women reclaim a body from a medical file and live in it again, um, you know, at any stage of diagnosis and specifically for a younger group of women who are so, um, so much younger than the median age of diagnosis and therefore spread out from each other and not really knowing where each other are. So I started, um, I started wildfire on my birthday. I, my diagnosis actually coincides with my birthday as well. So when I launched it, it was kind of this big, like, you know, I'm still here kind of taking back some power. And I decided to call it wildfire because my dad was a firefighter for 31 years. He was a volunteer fire chief in the woods that we lived in. And I grew up in this kind of culture of fire, which was not necessarily that fire was as bad and horrible as a thing as we kind of think of it as Mm -hmm. it it can be very destructive. It is very destructive, but it also can leave a landscape that is fertile for new life to grow. Mm -hmm. And, and that's what I wanted to explore, um, with the magazine. So when I launched it, it was very bloggish. I just used the tools that I had, you know, it was very, um, shoestring budget and, um, 
but even from that first day, I knew I wanted it to be on different themes related to survivorship. I wanted it, like I said, to be other people telling their stories. And over the years, it's grown to be this, um, this beautiful print magazine. Like I said, it's also digital, but I'm so proud of the print version of it um, because it's gorgeous. It has mm-hmm. around um, 25 to 35 contributors in each issue coming from all over the world we have this thing in common, this breast cancer diagnosis in common, but then, you know, we get to explore who they are as women before cancer came and mm. who they are now, the pieces that they're rebuilding. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, it's you, beautiful. it really is. Uh, I mean, I, I have the, the, the virtual um, digital copy for June, July of this year. And it's, it is so beautiful. Like it is a really beautiful magazine and, and um, I haven't read the entire thing, but I, w- I went through a number of the articles and there are so many contributors, but like, it's very, um, you know, some of the, some of the pieces are heart wrenching. Some of them are, are just extraordinarily, extraordinarily beautiful, like really beautiful poetry. Um, some of them are hilarious, but like also really educational and, and, and insightful. Like I, there was, I had kind of mentioned it earlier, but like I was coming across things where I was going, whoa, I didn't. I didn't know this was a thing. And it, I think, I, I mean, this is one of those many, many, many examples um, that we've, we've seen over the last six years of doing this show is the amount of times where we've talked to someone who's lived with an illness. And one of the things that comes up uh, time and time again is like this sentiment of there was so much that no one told me there was so much that no one told me to expect. Um, and I feel like this magazine is such a such a spectacular sort of resource resource for people mm-hmm. to like mm-hmm. actually come across the things that, you know what? Your healthcare professionals probably aren't gonna talk talk to you about you know, the fact that your nipple might fall off um, because mm-hmm. you've got, a, a, you know, breast, you, you got a, a breast implant or, mm-hmm. or, you know, what have you. <clears throat> um, and it's, it's like to, to have that also in it, it, sort of packaged in this beautiful piece of artwork that is also being provided by a bunch of contributors who are like similar age and, and like demographic and, I just, uh, I think it like you really do have something really, really beautiful and really wonderful mm-hmm. going on. And it's also really raw. Like it's really, it feels very real. It doesn't feel, it doesn't, I, I hope this doesn't come across the wrong way, but it doesn't feel cancery. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't feel like it's like some, it, it, it feels human. It feels human. It, it, mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like it's the diagnosis behind this 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 piece of work it feels like the humans that are behind it you know it's not it's not patience like if you were reading if you were reading through it and you didn't know that it was all the stories were related to breast cancer you would just be like oh well these are just all beautiful pieces it's (laughs) it's really coincidental that they're all (laughs) somehow tied to breast cancer yes yeah exactly yeah (laughs) the images are amazing yeah i I love the imagery too i feel like um like listening to you kind of describe the project and and how it came together and like the inspiration behind it and everything is like the, I think we find ourselves and I know it's, it's print, it's, it's both digital and print, but we find ourselves in a, in a world where like 
the internet appalls us on a daily basis in terms of like what it's like, what it's used for (laughs) and like, and, and, uh, and it's like, it's another way. It's another way where, where in the past community around something like this is, would have been much more challenging to, to create. Mm -hmm. And, um, and in, and in the, you know, just like the way that, you know, this is a podcast, we put it out, it's a, it's an internet based radio show. Like there are so many good uses of, of, of internet technology and like to create community around things that people are going to go through and that are like super fucking hard to go through. And with all these question marks, like Jer said, like all these things that you that no one's going to tell you, or, you know, that isn't going to come up with the, in the conversation with the physician, cause it's sort of adjacent to, you know, the, 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 the X's and O's of what you're going to go through and not directly related and all that stuff. And like, you can put out, you can put out, you can put something out there and, and get people together and create a community so that other people can, can feel like they are not alone. Like they are not isolated in the experience that they're going through. And it's like, I don't know, it's just kind of, I feel like I always think about the internet as like, Oh God, the internet. Mm -hmm. And then some days I'm like, Oh, the internet. internet." This is, this is, um, (laughs) this is the prime example of what I think the new role in healthcare should be. It's like your, uh, your patient journey chaperone and the person who chaperones you through this patient, um, experience should basically have all of the information that's wrapped up in wildfire Yeah, yeah, to like walk you through what it's like to, what it's going to be really like to deal with your illness. I, 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 April, can you, uh, I hope this is okay, but like, can you, can you kind of dive into a little bit about the, the editor's note for, for this, uh, this month's, um, or this latest issue? Because I did find it very interesting. You know, it's, we're, we're, we're here talking about normalizing breast cancer and the taboos surrounding it, but then also, you know, you've got this piece of work that, um, that is trying to portray really raw and real, insight into the experience of breast cancer. Um, but the, the cover is, I mean, it's, it's just a, it is a f- almost fully frontal nude woman with yeah. very visible breasts. And, uh, and I'm sure, uh, it would be, some people would find it quite shocking if they walked into Barnes and Noble and just saw that, you know, sitting on the magazine rack. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, it was so interesting to me, um, coming face to face with some of those feelings of trepidation about putting this cover out. So this issue is, um, I think it's our 35th issue at this point. And to realize that I hadn't put nipples on the cover up until this point was a really interesting realization Mm -hmm. for me. And I think part there's lots of different hats, you know, that I'm wearing kind of in this business. And one of them is survivor and needing to see all the images and read all the stories myself personally for my own healing. Um, but then I am also always still, you know, just a woman in our society. And then I'm also the, you know, an entrepreneur and trying to get this magazine into as many hands as possible. And, 
I found this cover, um, this woman, this beautiful woman who was willing to be photographed, um, with her deep flap scars, her belly scars, her, her nipple scars, everything. Um, I found this cover really kind of pushed me to explore where all of these points were kind of intersecting. And like you said, you know, would, would my stockist be willing to have this on the shelf in the bookstore? Would moms be willing to have this sitting on their, you know, their coffee table if their kids came by, um, um, I was really worried that they wouldn't, would the internet just like break if I put this on my Instagram, you know, what mm. would happen? Um, and the surprising thing that happened was, um, first I had to get really comfortable with it. And I had some conversations internally with my team, um, who had had one in particular, Monica, who had had a deep flap herself. And, she reminded me that we need to see images of people with our scars so that we know, number one, that other people are out there with the same scars as us. But number two, when you see this cover, you're blown away by the beauty of it. Like there's mm. just no way around that. And if you have those scars and you look at something and are like, that's gorgeous, it it makes you feel like, okay, maybe I'm gorgeous too. And mm. there's this like loop that's happening there. And so Monica reminded me of that because she herself had had a deep flap and it was incredible to her to see it represented, you know, large in this way um, as a cover photo. And then, um, and then I put it out there. I put it on my Instagram and, you know, did a cover reveal and uh, I don't know what happened, but the algorithm didn't, didn't seem to pick it up or something. I was, I've been able to post it a lot and mm. I have not had any trouble. It's getting lots of good response from everyone out there. I have had some contributors tell me that they, you know, Facebook um, particularly made them, um, you know, put them in a temporary Facebook jail for, for posting it. So right, right. some people, you know, have experienced that. Um, some people have decided for their own comfort to, you know, kind of blur the nipples or put stars on them or whatever, um, to make sure it wouldn't get flagged. But I felt it was really important that I model, you know, that this is what we stand for is these mm. real images, real people. Mm -hmm. Um, this image was created by, um, the breast cancer portrait project and they are all about just real, real, real. And, um, yeah, it, it really was an interesting process for me to realize that that's, mm. that's what's important. And, and honestly, also, I should be clear that mastectomy photos are legal in social media, there, but yeah. you know, the, the, the AI doesn't recognize, I mean, the, yeah. the nipples look so good. They don't know they're reconstructed. Right. right. So. Yeah. And, and the, a, the, the algorithm, the algorithm is, is, is one, one thing. Um, but just the, the, like, we need more stuff that, that, that takes away the blinders that we have on in terms of the, the human body yeah. mm -hmm. and going, this is sexual and nothing, it can't, like, and nothing else. Breasts yeah, are sexual and they yeah. can't be anything right. else. Like yeah. they can't be anything else but sexual. Yeah. And if people see them, they're going to, they're just going to, everything's everywhere. They're just going to start sweating and they're right. going to, they're going to, also are, changes are it's happening. Gonna be, it's going to be reefer madness. It's totally it's jerking off, but it's, it's more, too, too much, yeah, too much. It, it's more of it's a Western like, thing. And anyway, too, it because is, like, yeah. you know, the nipples, yes, very much so. female nipples, um, in, in like European culture, for example, people walk around topless all the Guys, time. It's, there's it's a tele, there's a children's television show. A Danish children's oh, television show, Denmark, yeah, that's where right. they 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 bring out like uh, like nine fully grown adults, fully naked, and stand them in front of an entire like elementary school class, and they give the floor to the kids to just ask 
all the questions that they want to ask all these people who are every shape, every size, every gender, every like you're, it's the whole spectrum of of human nude body, and they just encourage the kids like, hey, here's a tr- here is a trans woman standing next to a, a you know a seventy cisgendered male standing next to a 23 year old female, like ask away, ask the questions. Like, let's just normalize the human body because mm-hmm. they're all different. They've all had stories. They've all gone through experiences and you're going to, you're going to see very ma- many different things. But also we, you know, it's kind of not that's fair a, that's that a, that's a different podcast. It's kind of, it's kind of not fair that I can post my glamour shots on Instagram and not have them being, being taken down. But uh, like if a woman yeah, wants to post like, theirs, yeah. They're not right. allowed. Yeah. Like what the fuck? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's a big. Uh, that's a whole conversation. I man. think too, though, one of the things that you said, April, that really stuck out to me, and and you also do write about this in the editor's note, is like the power of seeing. The power of seeing your body, represented. In a in a place where you don't typically see that. So, mm-hmm. for 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 someone who has the deep flap breast mound reconstructive surgery to see somebody else on a cover of a magazine who has gone through the same thing, like the empowerment, the, 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 the sort of like worldview shift that comes from something like that. Or you even said so yourself, like the first time you felt good about the fact that you had an, uh, an aesthetic flat closure, but it wasn't until you saw somebody else showing their aesthetic flat closure that like it really hit you how much you needed that, you know? And I think there's something yes. really powerful to that and really, really important about that. Right. Well, it's kind of, um, you know, certain puzzle pieces kind of start to lock together when you see those images. I remember knowing, I knew my grandmother had breast cancer. I, that was a fact in our family, but it wasn't until years later, like more recently after seeing myself in the mirror and how my shirt falls, that I realized my grandmother had a flat closure. I don't mm. know what she looked like under her shirt. You know, I don't know how flat it was. I remember as a child, what it felt like to hug her. And I didn't know why it felt different. You know, I didn't know what was going on there. It was mm. like, I would never have expected she had no breasts. Like it would have been great if my grandmother could have stood in front of those um, preschoolers, right? You know, just to show, yeah, yeah another yeah. body. Um, but so, yeah, so when you start to see these images or even just to read a story where someone is voicing something that you can relate to, yeah. it allows these puzzle pieces to come together and just be like, oh, now I get it. And that makes sense. And I can start to make sense of me and, and yeah. how I fit in this. Yeah, right. Well, April, I got to say, <clears throat> um, uh, I, I'm, I'm a fan. Uh, I'm so glad that we, we were able to make this happen. I'm so glad that we were given a copy of the, of the latest issue. It's a beautiful magazine. Um, please, please let our listeners know how they can get their hands on it if they want it. Um, how can they stay up to date with what Wildfire is up to and what you're up to? Absolutely. So the best place would be just to go to the website, which is wildfirecommunity.org. There they can find all the issues. Um, they can subscribe for, for a year subscription, digital or print, or just buy individual issues. I also do um, writing workshops to help people, you know, find this, this sense of wholeness and to bring their stories out as well. And all that good stuff's at the, at the website. I'm also on Instagram, wildfire underscore BC underscore community. Amazing. Thank you so much, April. This is really, really fun. Thank you. 
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.